internal monologue going on inside your head. Psychologist Russell Hurlbert at the University of Nevada has spent the last few decades researching our internal monologues. So his preferred method of investigation is called descriptive experience sampling, DES. Descriptive experience sampling, in which participants carry around uh, a device as they go about their normal day-to-day activities. And when this device beeps, they tune in to what was going on in their minds right before they heard the sound, and then they record it and later on talk to one of the researchers about it. In a 2013 study, Hurlbert and his colleagues discovered huge differences between people in how much time they spend talking to themselves. The average frequency of inner speaking was 23%, but individuals ranged from 100%. So these are the people who every time they were sampled, every time they heard the beep, they had some kind of internal monologue going on inside their heads. To zero percent. These are the people who were never speaking to themselves internally at the time of the beep. Zero percent? Really? I can't fathom that because I'm the 100% of the time guy. Now, how about you? Do you have an internal monologue going on? How many, maybe not 100% like me, but how many of you would say, yeah, I, I got an internal monologue going on? Raise your hands. Okay, fine, good. So I bring this up because this internal monologue is the arena for our daily spiritual battle to trust the Lord. Our battle with fear and pride and depression and envy and lust and laziness is fought every single day through and in the arena of this internal monologue. Just like Pilgrim's companions on the way, coming alongside him, or Pixar's Inside Out movie, each one of these voices struggle to control our thoughts, which control our actions. So let me ask you, who wins the battle in your mind? Our sermon text today is the historical account of a real-life physical battle, like armies and cities and real people, that will teach us lessons about the real-life spiritual battle going on inside our minds and hearts. My prayer is that every one of us will be encouraged and equipped. 
Can I say that again? My prayer is that every one of us will be encouraged, but also equipped to trust the Lord in our everyday, sometimes all day, struggles with this internal monologue. So would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. This is our 17th study in Isaiah as we walk through this massive and glorious prophet. The main message that the Lord is communicating to his people through his prophet Isaiah is, trust me, I am the Lord your God. That's the whole book, in my opinion, in a nutshell. God to his people, particularly Judah, the southern portion of his kingdom, God says to his people through his prophet, trust me. I am the Lord your God. But you'll remember in chapter 1 through 12, the Lord confronted his people of their sin of distrust. In chapters 1 through 12, the Lord is saying to his people, you're not trusting me. You trust the other nations. And then in chapters 13 through 35, The Lord declares through oracles concerning those nations, I am the God of the whole earth and will bring every rebel nation into judgment. That was chapter 13 through 35. A declaration. I am the God of the whole earth and I will bring every rebel nation into judgment. And now as we come up to chapter 36 and 37, it's a demonstration of that truth. Not just a declaration, but chapter 36 and 37 is action. It is a demonstration of this truth. Because here in these two chapters, the great king of Assyria, the reigning superpower at the time, threatens the small and very weak nation whom God has chosen to be his own people. What happens when the king of the greatest superpower on earth threatens the small, weak, seemingly inconsequential people of God? Well, what we'll find out is that when the light of day breaks, we're going to see a miraculous demonstration of the truth that the Lord God of Israel is the Lord, the God of the whole earth, and he can be trusted to save his people from their enemies. So in chapter 36 and 37, I want us to understand the big picture of what's going on here. In your bulletin today, I gave you a note sheet. And that note sheet also has some highlight summaries. I'd I'd like for you, if you have one of those, to to maybe walk through that with me. I think it'll be helpful for you. But right now, 
Look in your copy of God's Word at Isaiah chapter 36, and let's get the historical context of what's going on here. Remember, this is real life. This is physical war, uh, not spiritual war. This is physical. We're going to learn some lessons for spiritual war, but let's look at what's going on here historically and physically first. Chapter 36, verse 1, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he, Rabshakeh, stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. So we're going to stop there for just a few minutes. Chapter 36 and 37 features about six different main characters. The first one, as you'll notice in chapter 36, verse 1, is Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was the king of Judah, which is the southern portion of of Israel. You remember Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Hezekiah was the king, a good king of Judah. He was the Davidic king who reigned in the Davidic city of God, Jerusalem. 2 Kings chapter 18 gives a record of Hezekiah. I would encourage you to go read it. It's a it's a parallel to our text today, but 2 Kings 18 says about Hezekiah that he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. The record says that Hezekiah removed the high places, which means he destroyed idolatry in Judah, and that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him in all the kings of Judah. For he held fast to the Lord. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. And note this, Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, had made a pact with them. Hezekiah, holding fast to the Lord, broke that pact and, quote, would not serve the king of the superpower, Assyria, any longer. Well, Sennacherib is the next character. He is the king. Look there in chapter 36, verse 1. Sennacherib, king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Why do you think Sennacherib came up against Hezekiah? Because he had rebelled against him. And he wanted to squash him. He wanted to teach him a lesson. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. He acceded to his throne in 705 BC. He is one in a long line of arrogant, evil kings of this wicked nation, Assyria. And so in verse 2, you'll notice that as 
Sennacherib's armies came that there's another main character. And you're going to see this main character multiple times throughout chapter 36 and 37. His title is Rabshakeh. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And those of you who know Hebrew better than I do, you can correct me later. But Rabshakeh is basically the spokesman for Sennacherib. It's his right-hand man. He is spokesman for the king of Assyria. And you can see him there in verse 2. Notice also that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, has his spokesman, plural, three of them, which I will lovingly refer to as the three amigos, because I don't want to have to say Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah every time. So here you have Rabshakeh coming as a dignitary from Assyria and the three amigos coming out of Jerusalem as the dignitaries from Judah. They're meeting in the middle and they're having talks. If you look over at chapter 37, verse 2, at some point in this, we see our fifth character. Isaiah. King Hezekiah calls on Isaiah for some counsel and help. He's the Lord's spokesman. Isn't this interesting? King, spokesman. King, spokesman. Now king, spokesman. And then chapter 37, verse 21. If you look there in your copy, 3721, you'll see that the Lord begins to speak for himself. He's the sixth, final, and most important character in these two chapters. Hezekiah, Sennacherib, Rabshakeh, the three amigos, Isaiah, and the Lord. Let me give you just kind of an overview of what happens here because it's very interesting. Would you go back to chapter 36, verse 1, and just follow me through here. If you look from verse 4 through 10, you're going to notice that Rabshakeh comes out and he makes a speech. Do you see verse 4 through 10? You can see the paragraph there. Basically what Rabshakeh says to the dignitaries from Judah is, you're going to be defeated and you know it. To which the three amigos say, Listen, could you hold it down a little bit? People might hear you. Can't we just deal with this privately? Stop talking in the common trade language. We don't want the women and children to be afraid. So can't we just handle this privately? To which Rabshakeh says, oh, you want me to keep it quiet? Let me raise my voice so that everybody on the wall can hear me. And then Rabshakeh shouts out to all the people in Jerusalem basically this. Don't trust Hezekiah. It's useless to trust God. Surrender to my king. I promise it'll be better for you. I promise. Word gets back to Hezekiah through the three amigos. Chapter 37 begins. Word gets back to King Hezekiah. And notice there for the first 
four verses that Hezekiah basically says, this is hopeless. I don't know what we're going to do. He has sackcloth and ashes on. Everybody is in mourning and grief over the threat of this massive enemy outside the walls. And he says, go find Isaiah and ask him to pray for us. Maybe Isaiah's God will help us. So, chapter 37, verse 5, the three amigos go to the prophet of God, Isaiah. And the prophet tells them, basically this in a nutshell, from the Lord. The Lord says this, don't listen to a word they say. Trust me. Don't listen to them. Just trust me. To which, chapter 37, verse 5 through 7, word gets back to King Sennacherib of Assyria. He writes letters to Hezekiah. And the letters, in essence, say this. You're going to be defeated. And your God can't help you. Your God can't help you any more than the gods of all of the nations help them against my armies. Surrender. Stop being foolish. Chapter 37, verse verse 14. Look. 37, 14. Hezekiah reads the letters. And then in a beautiful display of faith, good King Hezekiah lays out the letters before the Lord and prays. Oh Lord, you are God alone. Please save us. And from there, The rest of chapter 37, God speaks twice and he acts once. God says, Hezekiah, because you have prayed, I will destroy your enemies. Chapter 37, verse 21. And then he says, I will deliver a remnant of my people. I will defend my city. Not a single arrow is going to come into it. 3730 through 35. And then all the talking stops. All the talking stops. And God acts. Look at chapter 37, verse 36, and let me read. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of of Nisroch, his god, Adramalek, And Sharezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esrahaddon, 
his son reigned in his place. <laughs> Amazing. Isaiah 36 and 37 exists to make this one point. And it's a miraculous demonstration of this one big truth. The Lord God of Israel is the God of the whole earth and he can be trusted to save his people from their enemies no matter how big and powerful they are. But did you notice that before before God delivers his people, there's a battle of words. Did you notice that? Back and forth, back and forth. Rabshakeh to the three amigos. The three amigos back to Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh to Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Isaiah the Lord. There's a battle of words. Friends, before we experience the deliverance that God provides for us, there is a spiritual battle waging inside of us in the form of an internal monologue. You might say an internal dialogue. That's what I want to focus on today. I think the most notable thing about this text, yes, it's that one big point, but it's the process of how that played out through the speeches, through the battle for trust that's going on. So today, as we go through the rest of this sermon, as you visualize Assyria's massive troops, look, if 185,000 are dead and the king goes back home, there's more than 185,000 there. That's a massive siege on Jerusalem. As you consider the massive siege on Jerusalem, as you hear Rabshakeh's speeches, Let's consider the spiritual enemies that we face. Who are your enemies? Is it the threat of death? The temptation to sin? The lure of materialism? Is it that voice of pride and selfishness? Is it the pressure from our society? And let's understand that the battle is won or lost by whether we trust and obey the Lord or surrender to those enemies. So as we consider this text, I want us to, to learn three lessons from the physical battle that's going to both encourage and equip us 
to trust the Lord in our everyday spiritual battles. Three lessons. Lesson number one. Here's what we learn from this text. Lesson number one. Our enemy wages war on our trust in the Lord through internal monologue. That's where the war happens. It's not primarily out here with flesh and blood. The war happens internally with thoughts and words. Consider for a moment 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen to this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our battle is not flesh, we read in Ephesians chapter 6. It's not against people, as it was in the Old Testament there with God's people and the Assyrians. Our battle is a spiritual battle, and it's, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it's waging war against arguments and opinions and against thoughts. And I suggest that most of them are not coming at us out here. They're in here. Now, maybe they are, maybe they're fueled by society. But that internal monologue is the arena of this spiritual battle. And it's the enemy's speeches that we need to be aware of. Here in this text, there are three speeches that both Rabshakeh and Sennacherib give. So let's look at them. In chapter 36, verse 4, we see the enemy's first speech. And I want you to notice that of all of the things that Rabshakeh says, I want you to see how he plays on this one word. So if you're taking notes, enemy speech number one, write down this word, logic. Because that's what our enemies use against us. They use logic, truth, but not all of it. Look at chapter 36, verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust? that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Verse 7, But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to, to Jerusalem, You shall Worship before this altar? Come now. 
Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, and if you're able to put your riders on them, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord? Look at this, verse 10. Is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Do you get what Rabshakeh, the enemy, is saying here? There's a lot of truth in what he's saying. Number one, Egypt's unstable. You trust Egypt? It's like a staff that's going to break and pierce your hand. It's true. Number two, you're a hypocrite. You, Judah, you're a hypocrite. You don't even really worship God in the first place. Number three, you're weak and you know it. Even if we gave you horses, you don't even have soldiers enough to put on those horses. You're weak. Number four, and by the way, you think God's going to deliver you from us? It was God who sent us here in the first place. All of those, very logical, and at least have some element of truth in them. Our enemy uses a lot of truth to attack us. Listen, friends, does your monologue ever tell you that what you're trusting in is just as unstable as maybe God is in your mind? Does your internal monologue bring up your weakness or your hypocrisy? Maybe your internal monologue tells you you deserve this and you know it. God sent this to you. Logic. Enemy speech number two. He moves from logic and the Rabshakeh now, keyword, makes promises. Ah. The enemy's speech to us often majors on promises. Look at chapter 36, verse 13, and we'll see enemy speech number two. So, the three amigos say, hey, listen, can we just hold this down? Let's not speak in the trade language. And Rabshakeh says to them, forget it, I'm going to shout louder so that everybody can hear, hear me. Verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't, don't listen to Hezekiah when he says that. Make your peace. Look at verse 16. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. Each one of you his own fig tree. Each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I, Assyria, come and take you away to a land just like your own a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. 
Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the hand of King Assyria? Where are all those gods now, he asks. I want you to see here that the enemy begins to make promises. Did you see that in verse 16 and 17? Just surrender. Surrender, give in, give up. And it will lead to satisfaction. Everything will be better. Man, how many times has sin come to you and said, if you'll just give in, you'll be glad you did. Isn't that the essence of temptation and the lure of sin in the first place? Sin always makes promises that end up being lies. Let me ask you a question. When have you ever sinned and been glad you did? Never. Because the promise that it holds out always dissolves into guilt and shame. Enemy speeches, logic, promise, and then look at the third speech in chapter 37, verse 8. Finally, just sheer hopelessness. It's useless to resist. In chapter 37, verse 10, King Sennacherib writes letters. You can see that in verse 14, that they're letters. But in verse 10, we see the content of those letters. And hit the essence of his letters, look at verse 10. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Haven't the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Sennacherib says there's a long history of defeat here. And listen, I've heard that speech of the enemy many times, haven't you? Listen, you have a long history of failure. You're going to fail again. It's useless. Just give in. Everything will be fine. Our enemy wages war on our trust in the Lord through internal monologue. That's what we see in this text. And we need to be aware of that in our hearts, lest lest we feel like when we're having that internal monologue, maybe we can sometime somehow talk our way out of it. That's not the answer. Let's continue. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. Not only do we see our enemy here, Rabshakeh and his speeches, but we see the response of God's people. And our responses, lesson two, our responses must move from feeling to faith. Our responses have to be rooted in and driven by faith rather than how we feel. 
at the time. You recognize that your responses reveal who you trust, right? And when in that moment we feel fear or angry, or we feel something and we act on it, that shows that we trust ourselves. But when we respond by faith, we prove that we trust in God. Every day that spiritual war is happening in our internal monologue. Just like there were three speeches, there are three responses. Because when the enemy speaks, then there's a response. Response number one. Look back at chapter 36, verse 11. When Rabshakeh came out the first time and threatened Jerusalem, what did the three amigos do? They tried to control the situation. Look there in verse 11. He said, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We understand it. We don't want the people in Jerusalem to hear. Look at Rabshakeh's response in verse 12. Rabshakeh says, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And you can be sure that he wasn't very cultured and polite using those words. But the three amigos immediately tried to control and manage the situation. Friends, how often do we do that? When we face that spiritual temptation, do we try to control it and manage it ourselves? How often do we try to keep it private? Listen, let's let's just not let anybody know about this. Let's just handle this privately. God never tells us to deal with our sin privately, but he tells us to confess it and to even bring our brothers and sisters into the equation. Our response is often control. Response number two. Look at chapter 36, verse 11. When the three amigos came to Hezekiah, what was their response to everything that they heard? Look at chapter 36, verse 22. Look at 22. They came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. What was Hezekiah's response? Look at chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim, Shebna, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah. Notice these words. Chapter 37, verse 3. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Look at verse 4. It may be, Isaiah, that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Seems pretty good, all except for that one pronoun, your. 
the king of Israel, well, Judah, goes to the prophet and he says, this is a day of great grief. We've got ashes on our head, sackcloth on our bodies because they're gripped in fear. Isaiah, pray for us. Maybe your God will do something about it. Friends, have you ever asked someone else to pray for you because you didn't feel like God would listen to you, but he might listen to them? That exposes a faulty view of the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to ask other people to pray for you and with you. But a faulty view of the gospel leads you to ask someone else who you think might be a spiritual person and be in touch with God to pray for you because their relationship with God might get you some kind of answer that you don't have with God. See, you've bought into the whole works-based salvation of religion rather than the grace-based salvation of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. Our union with Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, brings us into, get these words, a perfect righteousness before God based on Christ's righteousness, not ours. Our standing in righteousness does not change because of the gospel. Our union with Christ brings us into a secure sonship based on Christ's relationship not ours. And our union with Christ brings us into an eternal new covenant of grace with God based on Christ's faithfulness to the covenant, not ours. Man, that is good news. Believe that? And you'll move from fear to faith, realizing that God is always for you. Always. Always for you in Christ. And that changed everything for Hezekiah. Because notice... That what comes after that word from God? Chapter 37, verse 14 is the final response, not of control, not of fear, but the response of faith. Chapter 37, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. He didn't send the three amigos. 
Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. Keep reading. Chapter 37, verse 14. And he spread the letters before the Lord. Can you see that? And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Verse 16. Now listen. You want to read something and meditate on it this week? Right here it is. Hezekiah's prayer of faith. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they're destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God. Did you hear that pronoun? O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Study it more closely, you'll find out that Hezekiah's prayer of faith starts with the godness of God. Oh, Lord, you are God alone, creator of heaven and earth. Starts with the godness of God. Number two, spreads out the reality of our need. He spread out those letters and basically said, God, did you hear that? Do you see what's going on here? Do you see the thousands and thousands of troops outside your city? And do you hear that Assyrian king mocking you? And then it ends with the desire for God's glory. Not just self-preservation. But look again at verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. Comma, not period. Comma, so that all the kingdoms of the earth might know that you alone are the Lord. His prayer of faith starts with the godness of God, spreads out the reality of his need, and then ends with the desire for God's glory. And the Lord acted, wait, in response to that prayer. That'll shake some of your fatalistic theology. Listen, God's going to do what God's going to do. Man doesn't have any part in it. Baloney. Isaiah chapter 37 begs to differ. Look at verse 21. 
Then Isaiah sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. What's the next word? Chapter 37, verse 21. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. That prayer of faith led to God delivering his people from their enemy. You see, if we're going to learn anything from this text, we learn, first of all, that our enemy wages war on our trust in the Lord through this internal monologue going on in our heads and in our hearts. And number two, our responses have to move from how we feel to what God says, from feeling to faith. Respond based on your emotions, and you will find yourself in a world of hurting and foolishness every time. Try to control the situation, manage the situation, keep it private, work it out. Respond according to how you feel. It's never going to work. But respond according to what God says. And the Lord will deliver you from every one of your enemies. You know how I know that? Because that's lesson number three. Lesson number three is this. Our God can be trusted. His words and His works prove it. Friends, you can trust God. You really can. You can trust God with your kids. You can trust God with your finances, with your job. You can trust God with every decision that you make. And what does trust look like? Trust looks like obedience. Trust and obey. If we don't obey, we prove that we don't trust. If we don't follow, we prove that we don't trust. How do we prove that we actually trust? By obeying. By doing what God tells us to do. Our God can be trusted. His words and His works prove it. I don't have time to go into the rest of this. I'll just leave you with these three words of God. God's word, number one, is an assurance of help to his people. God's word, number two, a promise of doom for the enemy. you got to read that later. I wish I had time. I don't. Chapter 37, verse 21 through 29, God talks directly to Sennacherib, and he ends it uh, by saying, uh, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to me, to my ears, I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I'll turn you back from the way you came. You go, God. And he does. God's word number three. I love this. Wish I had time to unpack it. Look at chapter 37, verse 30. It's a sign of salvation. Here's a sign for you, Judah. Here's something tangible that you're going to be able to get a hold of 
to know that I'm promising to deliver you. Friends, when we come to the table, we have a sign of our salvation. Something tangible that reminds us that our God can be trusted to deliver us from our enemies because of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we come to the table, it's a sign of remembrance. And then God stops talking and God just acts. God's work, God delivers his people in response to their faith. There's so much more we could talk about. But just as the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and threatened God's people with their speeches, our spiritual enemies like fear and pride and lust and laziness, They battle to erode our trust in the Lord. The battle is going to be won or lost based on what we really believe about who God is. Can I close with this text from Colossians chapter 3? Christian, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not things that are on the earth, because you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let me pray for us, please. Father, I want to thank you so much for the photo album of the Old Testament that shows us these real-life, historic, physical battles that teach us lessons about our spiritual battles. God, today we've learned that we can trust you. We can always trust you, even when every voice we hear tells us we can't trust you and that we're fools to trust you. I pray that you would create here people of faith who see you and hear you and live according to what we know rather than what we feel. Oh God, please do this for our good, but ultimately for your glory in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, and around the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.